Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Steve Hillage and the Salmon Song from his superb classic Fish Rising album from 1975. And as always, I've got this time Steve Hillage here on the Strange Brew for a fantastic interview on his whole career. So let's hear my chat. 
with Steve. Hello. Jason. Steve. Hello. Nice to see you, sir. Been fantastic in preparation for this, digging into your whole career, so it'd be great to sort of cover some of those highlights if possible. Okay, I'm uh, ready for whatever you want to throw at me. I'm here I am. Let's let's go for it. Brilliant. First of all, one of the main things that discusses your forthcoming UK tour, the uh, Golden Vibe tour. That's um, a live show where you'll be focusing on three of your classic solo albums of the 70s, Fish Rising, L Green and Motivation Radio. Yeah, we're basically doing a set based on the 70s repertoire of the Steve Hillage Band. And it's it's nice to play those old songs again. I, I enjoy it. I, I I still love them. It's great with the guys from the current lineup of Gong, who are very enthusiastic participants in the Steve Hillage band. And they're really great musicians and they, they really play play everything super well. And it's just a joy to play those songs again, let have them live again. I assume due to the nature of the pandemic or everything that you haven't had much of a chance to go out and talk given what's going on so well we had a bit of a flurry in 2019 i think this um a lot of interest was generated by the box set i did the search for the spark box set and then we had quite a few offers we had one really good offer to start doing some gigs and uh, that's when i gingerly broached the subject with the gone guys and they enthusiastically said they wanted to be in the band. And we did quite a few gigs in 2019. It went really well. And we had a whole a load of uh, gigs and tours set up for 2020. And uh, kabang, it all had to go. So we're, we're kind of picking up the pieces from that, really. But, I mean, it's not. I'm not going back to anything. This is now, here and now. We're in a, we're in a new, new world, a world of... Uh, full of crises and dark clouds mm. and uh you know i want to bring a bit of the golden vibe to people help help people retain their positivity that's uh something i think i can make a contribution that's one of the lovely things about that period of solo albums is adventure and experimenting and, and new sounds and, and that came out right out of the bat with fish rising how did you uh determine what material you wanted on that album because i think some of that dated prior to the the end of, of gong didn't it well i had a band i was in a band my first band which i formed in canterbury called Khan, and i had quite a lot of material for a proposed second Khan album that it was never to be and then um i started playing with kevin ayers and from that, I moved to Gong. Just uh, was just about fifty years ago from now, actually. Believe it or not, we were right now fifty years ago. We were in the Manor Studios recording the Flying Teapot album. Believe it or not, and um, but I had I had these songs with me, and also um, to be honest, just just when I was about to join Gong, when I was when I was still playing with Kevin Ayers, I had an approach from the about to be born Virgin Records who were interested in me possibly doing a solo record and i and i i said well i'm not not really ready for that yet i'm 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 really excited to start playing with gong and uh, let's see how it goes but maybe i'll contact you later when i'm ready and a couple of years later i did contact and i said i am ready let's do it and they they were up for it and that's how the album happened but i did have most of the material in fini- in semi finished or half you know form from the 
unrecorded Khan material. And also, obviously, it had the, I was heavily impregnated by the gong uh, vibration and heavy, heavy psychedelia. And that had an influence. And it brought about some extra tracks like the track After Clid. That, that yeah. was uh, written in, uh, when I was in gong. One of the tracks that people love to hear live even today, which dates from that time, is the Salmon Song. Was that a Khan track originally then? I was considering it for the Khan album. I wrote I wrote the riff and the basic song in um, early 72, before I joined Kevin Ayers, before I joined Gong. I had this riff and I, I loved it. And, <laughs> and I was halfway, I'd, I'd got quite a lot in the middle section as well, but which I finished that off uh, later once I was in Gong. Must have been exciting times around that early Virgin era. Got the manor, people like, is it Simon Haywood, one of the uh, producers there? The incredible success of, of Mike Oldfield and Tubular Bells. It's another 50th anniversary coming up, actually. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was exciting. I mean, the most exciting thing for me was actually being in, just being in Gong. It was fantastic. It, we, we had a f- two or three years that were just just incredible. So I'm, I'm really privileged to have experienced that. In Gong, you were in a big house in France, but then by the time of your solo album, you'd actually had to come back to England. Was that right? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, Gong had had this house for quite a while. I had it before I joined the band. In fact, um, one of the fir- the second time I no the third time I met David Allen was after he'd come to see uh, play with the Kevin Ainsley. He invited me down there in December '72, and I, that was, I went down to that house. I loved it down there, and that's when he invited me to join the band. And it was wonderful that house it had a really big music room, and it was in a in a little wood very secluded and we you, we could just play we had all our gear set up permanently we could play whenever we wanted no problems with noise and neighbors or anything and it was just magnificent and it was a real shame we we lost it actually we 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 were told we had to leave in the um, latter part of 73 and the band with the help of virgin records the band decamped to the uk but it kind of lost something a bit, you know. It was it was very special French phenomenon gone. I mean, it developed into a new thing a bit in England, but it it was very special when it was based in France. And then going back to the the second of the solo albums that you, you'll also be featuring live, we've got L, and there's a few cover versions if you want to use that term of key tracks of that psychedelic period, Hurdy Gurdy Man, and it's all too much. But with that, putting your own spin on that and then bringing a, a newer 70s sound to those tracks, was that the aim in, in relation to doing your own versions of material like that? Well, I just really loved those songs and I, and I just uh, decided, hey, I'm going to do some versions, my versions. And um, Billy Hurdy Gurdy Man, I remember, I mean, I always liked the song from the original Donovan one. I always felt it was like I didn't quite have it on the guitar solo level, you know, so I was always thought, oh, I could do something there, but I wasn't particularly fussed about it. And then in um, 1975, on a Gong French tour, we had a couple of days off in the city of Lyon, and I was walking around the old town, and I found an old music instrument shop 
And I went in and the guy, in fact, was a specialist in hurdy-gurdies, the actual real hurdy-gurdies, sort of like a thing with a wheel, a rosined wheel and strings and little wooden keyboard. And and, and he he let me play one and I was really getting into it and thinking, what a wonderful thing this is with the wheel and where it goes, and it was all fitting in my whole um, own vibe and... uh, and that was when I had the idea that, hey, maybe yeah, I could do hurdy-gurdy, man. It'd be really good, you know, and I had the idea then. Hey, 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 hey,
it started a run of you working with some incredible producers as well. On L, you've got Todd Rundgren. Yeah. So was that a name that was suggested to you or one that you put forward? Uh, well, I've had a lot of good luck and people I've, I've sort of crossed paths with. It's It's been pretty good for me. And um, I was a bit of a fan of Todd. I mean, I was introduced to his stuff by, believe it or not, a, a drummer called Chris Cutler of the group Henry Cow, who I used to share a flat with in London in 71, 72 and he was actually, as well as Vinter Soul, really wacko, um, quite difficult stuff, and Sun Ra and Frank Zappa and all the sort of stuff they were into. And he was really into Todd Rundgren. And he and he played me something, anything, and Wizard of Truth style. And I thought I started to really like them, you know. And um, and then I got into Utopia. I thought they were really good, but I actually went to see them in when I was still in Gong in 75 in Bristol, Colson Hall, just went there as a punter, you know. And uh, and then Todd came out with his um, initiation album, which wasn't to everybody's taste. But for me, in my sort of heavily psychedelic period, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I thought it was, coin a phrase, a dog's bollocks. And uh, I thought, wow, this guy, you know, I'd, I'd love to meet this guy. And then... Um, Lo and behold, I'd, by that time I'd left Gong and wasn't sure what we were going to do. But I was thinking I was going to do a new album and I was thinking maybe I'd do Hurdy Gurdy Man and maybe I'd do Ultra Much. I had the, had the germ of the idea. And then I got a call from um, Simon Draper of Virgin Records. He said, hey, Steve, you never guess what? I said, what? He said, um, we've been speaking to Todd Runger and he's interested in producing you. Would you like that? And I did a kind of, is the Pope a Catholic? <laughs> Within a few weeks, we were on a plane to America. That must have been a, a different recording experience to Gong, I, I guess, Very given... Different. yeah. Yes and no. I mean, and obviously, you have to remember, one of the things about Gong that's very special, and it, and it remains to this day, is as well as being, like, really out there on a psychedelic level, the level of musicianship is very, very high. It's it's an extraordinary combination. I don't know. I don't know hardly any other bands that have that. And um, so, when, particularly when we're doing Fish Rising, and we had an amazingly gifted drummer Pierre Merlin. I mean, with some pretty complicated stuff there, you know. And we we managed to get that was with most of the Gong lineup recorded in '74. So here I was in America with a with a different band, but I mean they're really good musicians. They like a challenge. I had some pretty complex arrangements they leapt at it and we went for it basically was that his studio in new york state or something like that upstate new york near near woodstock in a wooded mountainous area called mink hollow where did you record motivation radio then the, the next album uh well that was another another step in the whole story al was pretty successful we started and we formed a band the new band and we started doing a lot of gigs and we got booked onto an American tour supporting ELO and we were based in Los Angeles that's where we did the rehearsals and I did quite a lot of press and preparation for the tour first time I'd been to California and uh, one of the journalists that interviewed us he said oh, hey Steve there's a guy we're really friends with you really ought to meet called Malcolm Cecil I said, Malcolm Cecil, because I was really um, a big fan of the first Tonto's Expanding Headband album, Zero Time, particularly the 
song with the synthesized voice called River Song. I'd also like their second album, It's About Time. I used to play this a lot, and I, and I thought this was like really, at the time, I think my favourite pure electronic stuff at the time, apart from Rainbow and Curved Ear and things like that. So I leapt at the opportunity to go and meet Malcolm, and we went down and we went to his studio in, in Santa Monica, and he had the whole Tonto rig set up, and we we got on like a house on fire talking about this and that, and then we're trying stuff out on the synths and everything. And I was, I was also really, like, um, keen on the fact that he was um, he had big success producing Stevie Wonder, and he was working with these really great funk musicians, because that was something I was getting interested in as well, funky beats. And so I went away from that, and I thought, hey, you know, bing! We ought to get Malcolm to produce our next album. And so he it was proposed to him and he said yes, and that's how it happened. I think that marks you out as being different amongst not all your contemporaries, but certainly some, where you would just follow Tim Bonus is a bit like that today, where you've got that spirit of prog in terms of you will just branch out to whatever sound you want to use rather than someone's idea of what's progressive. You will just follow your muse. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been very lucky. Uh, I'm always ready to hear what record companies and things have to say, but I've never had a record company telling me what to do. I wouldn't accept that. I've always done what my creative uh, inspiration has led me to do, and uh, long may it continue. And I, w- I will say, actually, I mean, with regard to the sort of the prog world, I mean, obviously, when, when I started... Uh, my first band at school, when I saw the, the term progressive rock didn't exist. It was just like, but it was it was nice to play stuff with complex time signatures. It was it was a challenge and it was pleasant. We liked the sound. We liked we did, we didn't think everything had to be in four four. We liked to use sophisticated chords and wacky melodies. That was just what we liked. And uh, obviously, so things built up during the 70s. When we were on the American tour, we'd, we'd have occasions when I'd be meeting some fans and then chatting with them in America, and they'd be saying, you know, hey, Steve, what, what sort of music are you into? What are you listening to? Are you listening to Van de Graaff, Generator, <laughs> uh, King Crimson? I said, yeah, well, they're, they're all really good bands, but actually I'm really into Bootsy's rubber band at the moment and, and uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, and they're facing a Steve, you're into disco? And I was thinking, what's going on here? I mean, it's great music, you know. And, and I, re- I even got this feeling there was a kind of like, you know, weird attitude to black music. And I was thinking, well, what's, oh, that's not where I'm at at all. I'm, you know, I'm not into any kind of musical apartheid. I mean, I, I want to break down barriers and I want to create barriers. So that made me even more keen to do something different and, and to bring uh, a funky element because that's what I was hearing in my in my head. One of the other aspects is the approach for, for lyrics in that period. So going back to Motivation Radio, you've got light in the sky, you've got that sort of sci-fi feel. Was, is that something that you connected with and just felt fitted the, the music that you created at the, in that time? Yeah, the very uncompromising, uh, psychedelic, spiritually orientated uh lyrics and uh it's just what i wanted to do it's what i felt i had to say i mean it was a little bit similar to what we were doing with gong but david had this talent of 
expressing things in a kind of comedic, cartoon-like way. I, I didn't progress that uh, ability. I was more straight ahead, full frontal, as it were. I was always interested in those sort of philosophical pursuits right from when I was really young. I, I, I sometimes think it was because um, there was a period when I was about sort of five, six, when my, my parents had a lot of problems with, with ill health. And my grandmother died, and my my little brother got was really ill, and all kind of stuff happened. So basically, I was left on my own a lot at that time. I really had to, you know, I, and I got quite used to being alone and being on my own. And I, I de- just developed a, a meditative approach to things, and I think that's what led to me doing what what I do. I mean, I still have a similar. Um, philosophical orientation i'm not really so much into writing lyrics anymore i prefer to just work instrumentally but um it's nice as i say it's nice to get those old songs out again and give them a give them a good run Oh! <laughs> 
off your next album, your next album being Green, another side to you is shown on a track like Palm Trees, Love Guitar, something that's more reflective, more acoustic, potentially it's got a bit more of a romantic side. Was that just kind of something that came out naturally? Well, it was a, it was a riff I, I found that I was really uh, enjoying jamming on for like quite a few years, and eventually that song just blossomed. It grew, the palm tree grew, and, uh, you know, yeah, it's a love song. It's nice. One thing I would mention is that when we came back from America, the American tour, the long American tour where, where I met Malcolm Cecil, and we came back in March of 77, we did a last few couple of gigs in UK, Europe, and then I stopped. And at that time, I decided I was going to do a new album with Malcolm, and I had a, was going to change the band and change the sound a bit. And I had a, a real explosion of creativity in April of 77. And McKet and I together wrote really a lot of songs, far more than just one album. And basically, I sort of divided these two, two songs into two batches. I had the red batch and the green batch. And the red batch was more funky, more punchy, a bit more poppy. And that became Motivation Radio. And the green batch was a bit more introspective, psychedelic and trippy, and a little bit more linking back to Fish Rising. And that was the green batch. And when I came to do the next album, I already, you know, I had enough, had enough material for another album. And I had the guys, the American musicians that I was working with for Motivation Radio were over in England after the tour. And we decided to just go straight in the studio and do another album. I had this stuff and we decided to keep the name Green. Interesting you talk about dividing that material up. So was it then obvious to get someone like Nick Mason in to, to produce that? Obviously, Nick Mason from Pink Floyd. Um, we already had a contact with Nick Mason because um, he produced Shamal, which is the last Gong album, which although McKenna and I were leaving in the process that that record was being made, we still, we still participated in it and we, we parted on very good terms with the band and we did quite a few sessions and we, we, we got to know Nick and uh, we liked him a lot. And then again, um, Simon Draper, he, he suggested, he said, Nick, Nick would be very keen to work with you. See, what do you think? I said, perfect. <laughs> it was. I mean, I've been very lucky in that respect. I, I, thank you. <laughs> so what was Nick like? I assume, again, a different approach to Todd, who at times could be a bit more controlling. Oh, the, all of the, these three illustrious producers I was privileged to work with in The Sims, they're all very, very different. And it was actually very good for me later when I became myself a record producer having worked with these three people the other side of the glass gave me a kind of unique experience and it was it was good but nick nick was a uh, very pretty technical very on the case very funny guy i like him he's very great to work with. i'll tell you what his current project nick mason source full of secrets really damn good i mean we, we saw them uh we did um, this uh, Lorelei Festival in Germany and with the CPG in 2019, and they were on the same bill. Oh, I thought they were just like knockout. I mean, really good. 
because I, I, I obviously I saw the Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett several times when I was a young, young, uh, young lad who was very interested in all this psychedelic stuff at the time, and that really blew me away at the time. So I was very interested to see, to see how how they approached this with Nick Mason's band, and um, it's great because I mean they've got they've got the sound, but it's like they're not they're not just doing like carbon copies; they're expressing themselves in their own way, and it's. It's really great. We're going to open another festival with them uh, later this year, so I'm really looking forward to that.
also from that period with Jimi Hendrix and you've done Are You Experienced before? In fact, there's a great version of that on the Glastonbury Experience oh, yeah. uh, release, uh, which is just brilliant. And I'd like to ask you about Glastonbury in a second. Before that, maybe it's worth asking about Jimmy. So you mentioned about seeing Floyd in the late 60s. Did you get a chance to see Jimmy? I did. I saw him at the Marquee Club twice, sitting six foot away from him. I got the full hit with Blitz for Life. And the great thing I learned from Jimi Hendrix was you'd look at him and you'd see him playing and you could really feel this sort of force coming through him, like some kind of cosmic wind. It, it wasn't just coming from him like a one individual human being. He seemed to be a, a massive channel of something wonderful and uh, that experience stayed with me all my life. It was just incredible. I mean, in terms of guitar, I mean, I, the actual sort of total explosive psychedelic approach of Jimmy Hendrix's guitar is obviously a massive influence on me and many other guitarists. But I think in terms of tone, I was thinking about this recently because uh, I was doing a retrospective of records I used to like when I was learning to play and starting off. And in fact, Eric Clapton with Blue, John Mayall's Blues Breakers, in terms of tone, and also the tone, on the, particularly on the Fresh Cream album, not later stuff, but Fresh Cream, John Melbourne's record, that tone, that quite bright, but very sort of a flowing, milky sort of tone. That, that was the, that really influenced me strongly as well. And obviously I, I was privileged to see Cream sight a few times as well, so I got blitzed by that as well. It's kind of blotted his copybook now with his... Um, grotesque political uh, positions. So, I mean, it's a real pity because, I mean, uh, he was amazing, you know. He he was as every bit as good as they said he was when he, at that time. But then Jimi Hendrix was just something else. He was just, my God. I mean, there, I don't think there, anyone, there was never anyone before him and I don't think there was anyone after him like that. I mean, what a bloody phenomenon. I mean, incredible. Absolutely. So getting back to Glastonbury. Near where I live now, actually, where I'm speaking to you from. I'm in You've got quite um, a role in how Glastonbury is involved. So what was your role in relation to supporting the idea of Glastonbury getting back? So there was a period in the 70s where Glastonbury wasn't on and then 79 Glastonbury Festival where it had started. It was... Um... They were in a kind of conundrum with them um, because it because it, they couldn't keep going on doing a free festival like they did in 1971 because it was just like a bit of a money pit. And I mean, it wasn't really feasible on a practical level. So as the decade wore on, eventually the inexorable crunch came where they realised they're going to have to start selling tickets. Now, this was obviously very controversial in the amongst the counterculture at the time. And basically, Michael brought in various people from the scene to sort of like form a kind of like managing committee to try and steer this through so we could actually evolve Glastonbury from being like a, a glorious free festival that lost lots of money to being a, a ticket-based festival, which is obviously what it is today. And so I, eventually I was on a, an inner committee of four, myself, Michael Evis, Tony Andrews, who's a wonderful friend of mine who developed the turbo sound and later the function one sound systems and bill harkin uh stage designer who uh, built the pyramid and uh yeah i was very closely involved in the organization starting in you know all through all through 78 
we 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 soldiered away and got the thing prepared. And obviously, I wanted to play at it, and I had a wonderful set prepared. But it all went a bit pear shaped for me on the night, actually, because uh, I really wanted to play my full set that I prepared. And also, I'd always I'd made a big thing right from the beginning about you know, look, guys, if you're going to sell tickets. You've got to organise it professionally. You've got to keep the timing, no overrunning. You know you've got a deadline with the council and everything. You've got to sort of you sell tickets, but you do a put on a professional show. That's the deal. And, of course, it was a real mess with the overrunning and everything, and I was getting my knickers in a twist. What do I do, you know? Do I sort of sabotage my own set in order to – or do I sort of just say you – know, I was trying to get people to sort of – I was saying, look, look you know, you – this group, they could play tomorrow, maybe, you know. You could just give us enough time to do our set, please. But as it happened, we got closer. We got on pretty late. And I, at that point, I'd just gone, fuck it. I'm going to play myself, you know. So I, I just sort of carried on. And we overran and we went over the deadline. And Michael Evis, bless his heart, chopped us off. <laughs> it was and it was very, very... Uh, chaotic and weird i mean i don't think the audience realized what was going on at all but i was extremely upset and uh i, I was um it was a very traumatic moment for me and um i didn't even want to listen to the tapes of it that gig for i for me i had painful memories but just just a few years ago someone put up um one of the tapes as a, a, a partial tape as a recording on on youtube and i gave it a listen i thought Wow, it's bloody great. I got my tapes out and uh, I thought, wow, this is a really good performance. So I just thought, well, look, Leon, the music's great. Look, forget about all the sort of argy-bargy. And let's just, I'm just going to make the music. So I had to do a really lot of work on audio restoration, get the tape sound really good because it. I, I didn't have one tape of everything. I had to use several different tapes and put them together. But I think that came out really well and I'm really happy to release it. And obviously, I, I made my peace with Michael eventually when we came to do the, the dance stage in Glasgow in 1995. In fact, making my peace with Michael was part of the process of getting that stage together. It continues the theme we discussed before about having a, a full spectrum of, of music sounds, and it's absolutely the right thing that Glastonbury represented that. That's my argument with him, but, I mean, what got <laughs> someone someone that he knew and trusted from way back in the 70s, needed to place that argument to him. He wasn't, if, if people came from the dance scene and made that argument to him, he just blanked them out. He's saying, oh, yeah, I saw very well <laughs> you guys up in London, you know, we, we we do things differently down here, you know, and, you know how he is. And so uh, there's a whole bunch of other people in the dance music scene. They came to me and said, look, Steve, you're, you do what, you're the guy who can get through to Michael. I said, yeah, but you know, I've had this sort of rift with him. You know, I don't. We do. We had this terrible experience back in '79. I don't know. And then I had the idea. I thought, okay, what I'll do? I'll write a really nice letter to Michael. I'll apologise for my terrible behaviour and try and heal the whole thing. And then say, and by the way, you really ought to be thinking about an official dance music stage if you want to consider yourself covering the full spectrum of contemporary arts and music which you claim to do and i sent this letter off and i thought well we'll give that a whirl and two days later the phone rang it's michael and it started to move this is the glastonbury experience 
solstice sunrise from the bottom of the sea. But, but are you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? Well, we all have. Maybe some little part of you started complaining, saying, Little world won't let you go home. Made out of gold and can't be sold. Are you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? Are you We discussed the psychedelic London era and you'd be seeing some of the great figures there. But it's interesting about you going to university in Canterbury. Was that accident or design given what was going on in that period? An accident. A lot of things have happened to me by accident, fortuitous accidents. And um, no, I mean, basically, we had a band at school, originally called Uriel, and that's where we developed a lot of my earliest musical experiences were developed there. The, the guys wanted to leave the school even before taking their A-levels because they wanted to do it professionally. But for various reasons, family issues and everything, I couldn't. I couldn't do that. So I had to leave the band, although I still did things with them, like the Arzakel album and things like that. So all in all, I did my A-levels and went through the university application process. I was thinking purely about academic universities. I went to various universities, went to Exeter, went to my I think my first choice was Sussex. 
but I couldn't get in there. And then Kent came up and they offered me a place. I thought, okay, Kent, Canterbury, sounds good. I didn't know that Caravan and Soft Machine came from Canterbury. I knew they came from Kent. I mean, these were bands I really liked. I mean, with, again, with other other also bands we saw at the Marquee Club, you know, after school. And uh, I was blown away. I realized, suddenly realized I'd stumbled into a little epicenter of something very special. And uh, I started jamming around with a few people, and I eventually got in contact with some of these illustrious Canterbury people. And we, I just thought at that time, well, okay, you know, this is... I'm being pointed in the, in the direction of a musical career. I'm just going to have to leave the university. So that was the moment when I finally decided uh, I, I was going to be a professional musician. And luckily, I managed to get a sabbatical because that reckon made my parents more comfy yeah. idea. So you know, if all else failed, I could have gone back to university. Maybe I still could. <laughs> I was this year. I could go back to university, be a mature student. So did that set the tone for the Khan album, uh, Space Shanty, then, in terms of the sound and, and what you were built, building on in, in that time? There was a considerable Canterbury music influence. There's all, all more various influences were there, but being in Canterbury and having musical contacts with the caravan guys and people like Robert Wyatt, it's just obviously inescapably that that, that rubbed off on me and the, the, the sort of chord progressions that caravan used. I found myself using in things like driving for Amsterdam and things like that. And um, yeah, it was, and I wrote most of that in Canterbury. So yeah, it has a, definitely has a Canterbury influence.
jumping back to production, working with Simple Minds on the uh, Sons and Fascination Sister Feelings Call material, so you were able to bring in or you'd observed some of the greatest producers at work, including the Gong era. Well, obviously, I'd had, a, to a certain extent, a pretty good training course in in how producers work and also how it feels as an artist to be produced. So it obviously gives me a sort of an extra angle of empathy with the artists that I would be working with. And uh, obviously, just on a technical level, I'd, I'd got some pretty good studio chops together by, by, by the end of the 70s. But when we go to the end of the 70s, I, 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 having had about 10 years of absolutely unrelenting activity, exhilarating, fun, done lots of great things, but I was totally burnt out. I mean, I, was, I just couldn't do it anymore. I just had to stop. I didn't even know what I wanted to do. I just had to stop. And uh, and then Virgin started pestering me to do another album, and I said, "No, I can't do it, man. You know, I'm not. I'm just not there." And then I said, "Hey, I know. I you know, I always wanted to get into record production. I'd love to sort of collaborate with other artists, but in a different way, you know." And uh, so I I just put out a few feelers to see if they would be interested, and I got a few uh, small jobs in 1980, and lo and behold, uh. I got offered a major job. It was a bit like being jumping in the deep end. And uh, that was an amazing experience. The big thing with Simple Minds was I wanted, I wanted to check them out live. And from the first meeting, I told them that. I said, I want to see you guys play live. And, I, and they got me up to Glasgow to a gig at a, quite a big venue. And, and I was really blown away. And I was blown away by the, by their groove. I was also blown away by the fact that there's a sort of a dark aspect to the music, also a very colourful aspect to the music, which I didn't think had come out quite enough on previous recordings. I also wanted to get a bit more of the raw live vibe in the production, and that was basically I had a, I had an angle then, and I stuck with that, and I think I think I got it pretty good actually, and I think as well when they moved on from me and they went in fact to a more deeper sort of fatter richer sound with um new gold and that was a really good progression as well so it all worked, it all worked really nicely for them you were talking about the material that you were listening to sometimes stuff with a bit more of a groove you've got the synth there there's actually quite a bit in common in the roots of simple minds you can hear it on material from the album like the american where you've got the the drums you've got the synths in there so actually there's a there is a bit of a shared interest in terms of sound that you can build off. Oh, we had a lot of uh, a lot of common ground, particularly because um they were very heavily influenced by German psychedelic rock music groups like Neu and Can, and particularly the Neu guitarist Michael Rother's solo music, which I was really into as well. And they, and uh the fact that I even knew personally some German musicians like Manuel Gotching, the late Manuel Gotching, who's sadly just passed away. Manuel Gotching of Ashroy, a really good friend of mine at the time. And uh, that really impressed them. And we've had a lot of common ground there. So that was a good, good starting point.
the last period or group of material I'd like to ask you about is the blossoming and, and renewal of your career with System 7, still having that experimentation, but obviously something with a bit more of a, a dance or, or digital feel. When did the idea for that really start germinating? Well, we were, we, uh, we were interested in electronic music right from the beginning. I mean, I remember listening to the first Walter Lately, when, later Wendy Carlos albums. This is before I even heard Tonto's expanding headband. And of course, Rainbow and Curved Air, Terry Riley. I mean, I followed the whole thing. And then Tangerine Dream, they were with Gong. They were our support act for a tour in France. You know, we, 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 we were following the whole wave as it was coming through. And we, we were... And we also had a very good synth player in Gong, Tim Blake, who uh, had a very good sound approach. And uh, I remember one particular incident that was a big influence was um, on a Steve Village Band gig in 1978. There was a DJ playing before us. This was before it was released. He'd got a pre-release copy of The Man Machine by Kraftwerk, and he was playing it on a really good-sounding sound system. And the audience were, were dancing, like quite enthusiastically. It was, a, it was like they were dancing to Crawford. I'd never seen anything like this before. This was just absolutely extraordinary. I mean, people normally associated German music with sitting cross-legged with a big conical joint and headphones, you know. Like people dancing and joking. And I went and got Miquette from the dressing room, and I I, uh, I said, Miquette, they're dancing to Crawford. It's incredible. And she came over and looked. said, wow. And... Uh, it was like a eureka moment. We'd seen the future, like electronic dance music. This is going to be enormous, you know. And then what I particularly remember was the sensation of the sound coming out of the speakers of the PA, not feeling they were coming from humans at all. It was just sonic sculptures, like these sort of acoustic shapes just moving around, and it was just... It was it was it was really quite mind blowing actually. So that was a big influence. And obviously, we with Simple Minds, we were got involved doing quite a few twelve inch mixes. There was a burgeoning club scene at the time they called Futurist, and we followed this whole thing through. And um, then we came to do another record with the one Fortune X and not all. We decided we just didn't want to do one with a band. We'd get a load of equipment. And we'd do it ourselves and see where that took us. So that was a kind of stepping stone along the way. But obviously, when uh, the big dance music explosion happened, it became kind of irresistible. We just felt we um, we had a great we had a great new possibility if we had if we had really good dance music beat production and then used some of our classic synth and guitar sounds over the top. Well, I thought we just thought we could. You know, we could carve out a decent little sound, you know, of our own, and that was System Seven, and it kind of worked. Listening to System Seven, it's it's amazing the audience you have with that, and especially um, some of material which is relatively more recent, like um, "Song for the Phoenix." That's a great track. That's a song that connects with so many people. Oh, so How do you com- compose? Oh, it's the. Uh, Many different ways we go about it. I mean, obviously, we collaborate as well with other people quite a lot. And it can start with a sample. It can start with a guitar sound. It can start with a groove. Something will trigger something else, and something else will lead to something else. That particular song, Song for the Phoenix, actually, we did three versions of that. That's the third version 
the first version is called, called Y2K, and it's on our 97, 1997 album, Golden Section. And then we did a, another version, which we did for a, a compilation, a rather underground compilation in sort of years later. We called that Y3K. And then when we started on the Phoenix project, it was another very interesting collaboration with um, the daughter of a very eminent Japanese manga pioneer who wrote these this amazingly uh, cosmic and psychedelic series of books, very deep stuff called The Phoenix, about the Japanese legend of the Phoenix, which is a little bit different to the European legend of the Phoenix because obviously reincarnation is part of the Buddhist tradition, which obviously isn't in the Christian tradition. So we, we we thought we I just felt I'd like to give that song another upgrade and put it in the Phoenix album. And that's how it became Song for the Phoenix. Fantastic. So there's a lot going on. And I think you've got a live album, LA Forum in 1977. So that's imminent. You've got the tour. I'm sure you're working on new and other material as well. We, we, we've been halfway through another Mirror System album, but I don't think that will come out this year. I think it will come out next year. We 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 see it as uh, parallel tracks, you know. We're happy to do um, stuff with the Sea Village Band and Gong, but that's not what we're going to spend all our time doing. And, you know, System 7 and Mirror System are really, like, central to our creative uh, actions and our compositions, and long may it continue. <laughs> that's a perfect way to end. Steve, what a privilege and pleasure it is to speak with you. I wish you all the best. Also, I will mention one final thing. Yeah. We've got a few surprise tracks on the, the tour, I'm, so I'm not going to reveal what they are, but uh, I think they will give a lot of pleasure to the people. Another reason not to miss out. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was great. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.